Hi, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Welcome to Tumble, the show where we explore stories of science discovery. Today, we're taking you on a tour behind the scenes of one of the greatest natural history museums and discovering the world of minerals. How has the Earth made these incredible shiny things? And how do we know? We're about to find out. Today, we have two great listener questions about minerals. My name is Mary Lou, and I'm from Auckland, New Zealand, and I'm nine years old. My question is, how are minerals made? Mary Lou told us that she got interested in minerals when she was studying volcanoes in school. The second question comes from Tilly, a five-year-old with a rock collection. My question is, what makes rocks sparkly? What does make rocks sparkly? I'm assuming that all of Tilly's rocks are full of sparkles. I collect other rocks that aren't sparkly, too. Okay, so what do minerals and sparkly rocks have in common? Well, the answer to Tilly's question is part of the answer to Mary Lou's, because rocks are made up of minerals, some of which happen to be shiny. Ooh, shiny. To find out how minerals get made, I went to the Field Museum of Natural History in Chicago. Just uh, gallivanting around the world while I stay at home and boring old Barcelona. I know, we've been to the Field Museum together a few times before. But did you know only 1% of the Field Museum's collections are in the public displays, which you get to see? The displays you get to see are pretty awesome. You don't want to downplay those. (laughs) I know. Who could downplay gigantic fighting elephants? (laughs) It's so cool. The rest of the fossils, artifacts, and general stuff that makes up the history of the world are stored behind the scenes in the collections. And I got to meet the guy responsible for maintaining the ultimate rock collection. So I'm in charge of over 60,000 specimens, um, ranging from meteorites, rocks, minerals, jewelries, gemstones. That's Jim Holstein, collections manager of physical geology. Which means rocks and stuff. Yeah, and meteorites too. He led me down the hallway from his office into an elevator that would take us to the mineral collection. So, like, were you really into rocks as a kid? As a kid, yeah. I love rocks and I love sparkly things. And I would walk to school every day and I would pick up sparkly objects on the ground all the time. My mother was so mad at me because whenever she'd do do my laundry, she'd have to empty out all my pockets of all these rocks. Sometimes they would end up in the dryer and start making all these noises. We arrived at the mineral collection floor, and the elevator opened up into what kind of looked like a locker room. Without the dirty socks. And with rocks instead of people. Well, we're walking down this corridor with gray cabinets on both sides, and each of these cabinets have a lock on them because some of these minerals are, are, are quite precious. And you'll see a little label on top of these cabinets with a numbering system. This system refers to the Dana classification system. It's kind of like the Dewey Decimal of a natural history museum. Exactly. So minerals have a classification system, just like uh, books. Yeah, and not only does it help Jim find the mineral he's looking for, it ties into the history of mineralogy, or the study of minerals. Well, basically, people have been interested in studying minerals since the beginning of human history. Um, First recorded scientific work done was done in the the Roman Empire. 
uh, by Pliny the Elder, who was actually one of the first naturalists who was very curious about this around the, about the world. And he started describing minerals and describing uh, what made them different from one another. And it wasn't really until the 1700s and 1800s that people started to really take a deep look at what makes minerals different from one another. Uh, around the same time that Carl Linnaeus was figuring out how animals are different from one another. And it's no coincidence that minerals are also described as different species from one another. Whether it's mammals or minerals, a classification system is a way to order and then understand the world around us. So let's start off at a low number. So we're going into a cabinet that has a number 1111 on it, and that refers to a native um, mineral. Native elements or native minerals are made up of one element only. Can you guess what one might be? Um, copper? Uh, it came into my head just as you opened sure. the door and Coincidentally, I looked at <laughs> it. you named it as soon as I opened up the cabinet and we saw a copper. Oh man, you totally cheated on that question. Who's to say what happened? <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, Jim pulled out a piece of pure solid copper with arms branching out like a heavy piece of ginger. And you can see it looks just like a penny except in its shape. These are a uh, crystalline form of copper made up of one element, which is... Copper. <laughs> exactly. So other native elements or native minerals uh, are gold, silver. So these are all things that are found in their natural form um, with one element present. So as the numbering system goes up higher, you have more and more complex um, minerals. I get it. So the higher the number, the more chemically complicated the mineral. Exactly. It makes more sense than Dewey Decimal System to me. Yeah, Dewey Decimal System doesn't make any sense. It's just like, <laughs> why should history be one number and literature be another? I don't know. Who knows? But so why are minerals the way they are? How did they get to be like one kind versus another? These things form in a variety of different ways. Um, most common way that minerals form is through the uh, cooling of magma. Uh, minerals like these metallic minerals are often found in a superheated underground hydrothermal environments. These shiny metal minerals like copper are born when super hot water meets underground rocks. If the Earth's tectonic plates shift, like they do in an earthquake, or if magma cools down, the water also starts to cool and it leaves behind mineral deposits. Uh, other minerals are going to be formed uh, by precipitation, which means you have a, an element-rich solution that starts to um, evaporate. So this kind of precipitation sounds sort of like the opposite of what we normally think of as precipitation, which is rain or snow, right? It's about evaporation, not accumulation. Exactly. When the liquid part of the solution evaporates off, what's left behind is a mineral deposit. That's the way uh, I'd want to form if I was a mineral, just slowly drying off in the sun, kind of chilling out. I don't know. I feel like the earthquake and magma way makes you stronger. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it builds character, but it sounds kind of painful. <laughs> Anyhow, minerals are born, but they also grow. The mineral group of quartz is a really good example of this. Quartz is everywhere. You see it in jewelry, watches, countertops, and of course, magical shops. <laughs> when you think of a crystal, you're probably thinking of quartz. It's made up of two elements, so it's in a cabinet with a higher number than copper. A particular mineral like quartz can come in a whole bunch of different colors. 
Uh, for example, we're looking at a quartz geode. Yeah, yeah this is actually like astonishingly beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> I loved geodes as a kid, so I was really blown away by this rock. It was about a foot wide, it looked super heavy, and the crystals were like a deep purple that went into white. It was it was incredible. The ultimate sparkly rock. Yes, but in this cabinet, each quartz was incredibly different. Yellow quartz is called citrine and uh, brown quartz. We have a nice large crystal of brown quartz down here. This is called smoky quartz. This is, this is insane. <laughs> like, this is just insanely awesome looking. Wow. It looks like something that like in a fantasy novel mm -hmm. you would be searching for. And when you put your hands on it like you're doing now, it would bring you magical power. Exactly. And people <laughs> do really open up the imagination when you look at something like this. And the one I'm holding is about maybe, I don't know, 10 inches long, weighs about 20 pounds or so. Uh, but some quartz crystals and other crystals get much, much larger than this. And it's all about how much time it takes for these things to cool off. Crystals can form very quickly, like snowflakes, or very slowly, depending on how long it takes for elements to cool. A crystal like the one Jim was holding could take decades, if not hundreds, thousands, and maybe millions of years to form. You actually find growth rings inside of them, kind of like tree rings. Wow, but how do we know this? Well, like Jim was saying earlier, people started to get serious about minerals in the 17 and 1800s. Uh, the age of the Enlightenment. Right. It was basically a time when people got professionally curious about the natural world. And this curiosity led to the scientific method, led to um, more discoveries and more ways of actually looking at it, more ways that we're looking at today. Like we have equipment now that didn't exist 50 years ago that we can use to analyze uh, minerals. With new technology, scientists can perform chemical analysis that used to be a long and laborious process. Now they do it only in seconds. Well, what does that tell us? It helps us discover new minerals, for one thing. There's actually over 5,300 known minerals on Earth. And the number goes up every year uh, by about 50 or 60, so that number is constantly growing. How do we know that they're yet to be discovered if we haven't discovered them? <laughs> um, that's a very good question, and I think that the quickest answer would be that uh, we're still going into areas that have never been looked at before. Yeah, eventually we probably will run out of minerals. We'll probably say, oh, that's about all we're, we're going to find. There's still minerals just waiting to be discovered. And who knows how shiny they are. I hope they're really shiny. But not like blindingly shiny. Like we need to see minerals. Thank I'd you. like to be able to look at them. <laughs> Jim had one last set of minerals to show us. But first, he turned off the lights. The corridor went completely dark. Then he clicked on a flashlight and found the right cabinet. Yeah. Hi. All right, so this, this is a very special group of minerals called fluorescent minerals. These are rocks that are glow in the dark. Ooh. We're going to play a game. What color is this? This one here. Uh, cheesecake colored. Oh, cheesecake colored. It's a perfect way to describe it. And now what color is it? It's green. That's a mineral called opal. This type of opal actually glows under UV light a different color. So it goes from this sort of cheesecake color to green. And the one next to it, what color is that? It's a milky white color. Oh wow, it's pink. 
Jim went through the rest of the rocks in the cabinet. Each time he clicked his flashlight off, a perfectly normal-looking rock would light up in amazing fluorescent colors, just like a glow stick. Uh, This isn't a chemical reaction, though. though This is an energy reaction having to do with electromagnetic energy, higher energies hitting these electrons and exciting them. Oh, man, that is so cool. I know, but minerals aren't all about sparkles and glow-in-the-dark fluorescent colors. Minerals have proven incredibly useful for humans to understand. You know, a lot of these minerals, not just with like their natural beauty, have all these uh, unusual characteristics, and they're used in everyday life. You know, the first one that we looked at was copper, and copper is used for copper wiring, for example. So everything that you see here kind of has a use uh, to us people. And so it's not just about having a cool rock collection. I think every kid throughout the course of human history has at some point picked up a rock and wondered where it came from. And that's the instinct that brought us everything we know and invented with minerals and everything we will know in the future. That and the instinct for looking at cool rocks. Uh, First, we have curiosity, I think, as a foundational um, human characteristic. And so our brains are structured to see order in things that were disordered before. And it's understanding how these things uh, relate to one another, their relative uh, structures and colors and everything else that go with it. And I'm not just talking about, you know, rocks and minerals, I'm talking about like life itself too. If you think about it, in every area of science, from biology to astronomy, even to the humanities, humans have classification systems. We gotta keep track of our stuff, especially our knowledge. And that's something we're still doing to this day, is like structuring and ordering what we see in the natural world, which has its foundations in the early days of science. And it's just a continuation of um, our natural curiosity. Do you have a rock collection or a collection of really anything at home? Create your own classification system and ways to describe it. Or, if you're feeling ambitious, learn how mineralogists classify minerals and see if you can identify them in rocks around your house. Jim Holstein, collection manager of physical geology and meteorites at the Field Museum, and also Sarah Lawton at the Field Museum. Thanks to Mary Lou and Tilly for their questions, and our many other listeners who have asked about minerals, rocks, and geodes. We'll have more rockin' stories (laughs) for you sometime soon. (laughs) Sarah Lentz is our editor. Yes, That's a new title for Sarah, because she's always been the one who makes sure that all of our stories make sense, and that's the work of an editor. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Lindsay Patterson, and I write and produce this show. And I'm Marshall Escamilla. I make all of the music. Thanks for listening, and tune in next time for more stories of science discovery.